0: Hello, anybody there?
1: Hi. Can you see me and hear me?
0: Yes, I can. I can see you and hear you. Good hi. morning. Good morning. Good afternoon.
1: Uh, it is barely morning. Yes. <laughs> okay. Hi, goodness. Hi,
0: Bronwyn. Hi, Bronwyn. Wonderful to meet you. I'm um, Hi May. So, how are you?
1: I'm doing well. Good. It's fun to connect with people on Twitter.
0: Absolutely. It is the Good. most random thing, isn't it? I know it really is but listen i'm very appreciative of your time i know that uh it's a busy world out there but if you're okay do you mind if we get the ball rolling with a few questions absolutely excellent so let's start at the beginning just to get a sense of where you come from and and what your context is can you tell me uh a bit about where you grew up maybe where you're from sure so
1: i'm from sonoma county in the bay area in california um and i am um generation born in San Francisco. So we've been here a long time. And um, I'm a teacher and I uh, taught in Oakland, which is what my books are about. And I already forgot what else you wanted to know.
0: <laughs> a little a little bit of your childhood. Let's let's go back there and see oh, what sure. that was like. Okay,
1: so. Um, so I have two siblings. I'm the oldest um, and uh, my parents this, this is my interesting fun fact. My parents both came from very wealthy Marin County families, and then they became a, um, a diesel mechanic and a preschool teacher. And so we grew up working class, mm. um, but we were the first ones on either. Well, we we're definitely the first ones on my mom's side of the family. They were in the social register. They were high society, San Francisco. Um, And, you know, I had student loans till I was 45. So um, (laughs) a little bit of a unique downward uh, economic trajectory. Yeah. Um, Yeah, we grew up in Petaluma. We had lots of pets. Um, I didn't know I wanted to be a teacher, but I always worked with kids. And um, then uh, my senior year of college, I just decided to go for it. And everyone says, oh, yeah, ever since you're a little kid, we knew you were going to be a teacher. And I was like, but okay, no one told me. I didn't know that.
0: Mm. Did you have a sense of that change in your family from an early age? Did you know that that your family came from from money? Was that ever a sticking point in conversations? Yes,
1: yes it really was. Um, so the the short version of the story is not only did my parents choose, you know, occupations that did not make any money, but my grandfather, my family was all very wealthy Marin County artists. And my grandfather had a um, real estate His My great grandfather um, founded a real estate company. Um, he was the first person in Marin County to have a private pool. Like that's the level of wealth. Wow. Um, and my grandfather was an alcoholic and lost it all. Um, and so we had this very interesting. Like my mother's generation and above, all still lived like they were incredibly wealthy um, to the day they died. Mm-hmm. And some of them were more so than others. My parents um, started budgeting, <laughs> <laughs> and so. My parents are, um, you know, they they did okay because they got responsible. They started budgeting. Um, And, uh, you know, other people in my family, not so much. So it was always, I think, it took decades for my mom to, like, realize that, you know, she lived in this new world. Yeah.
0: Mm. So as you're going into college and you feel like you're getting settled into your adulthood, what is it that led you to education or, or that track?
1: You know, Um, it's a great question. I wasn't going to, so I, I changed my major a number of times. I was first major in biology, wanted to be a scientist. Um, and then I realized that I really enjoyed science and I was very good at it, but, um, the actual life of a scientist in labs, I got bored. I didn't, it wasn't challenging in the way I wanted. Mm. Um, so I did an internship at a fourth grade classroom and that was kind of what I wanted. And I did not for a second think about the financial ramifications of becoming a teacher. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I should have. Um, And then, you know, I I did another internship and then I just sort of had morphed into um, that was now my my plan. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did my student teaching in Sacramento and I uh, got my first teaching job in Oakland
0: at 24 years old. Yeah. Wow. So that's uh, sort of the basis of what you're writing about then or what you you started to put mm-hmm. together in your work. Can you right, tell me a right. bit about that time period? Because it seems like it's a huge cultural clash. There's a lot of things that are going to be transforming your perspective in that period of your life. Could you set the stage for that? Like, what was your expectation and how was it transformed by those experiences?
1: Right. I'm going to be quite honest, and I'm not proud of this. My expectation was that I was a young idealistic white woman who's going to save children of color. And I, I like to be honest about the. Well, I don't like it. It's embarrassing. But I am honest about that, I think, because I think more of us need to claim that. And, you know, I have changed and I have grown in large part thanks to the community that I was working in educating me. Um, but that's a very common thing. And I don't think that we do anyone any favors if we pretend it's not. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, I went through the regular credential program, but Teach for America, you see this a lot. Um, you know, a lot of different programs, you know, you're sort of going to run in there and save the kids. And, um, you know, that, um, you're not going to be a good teacher if that is what you do, but that was, you know, I had always liked working with kids. And then I think when I started teaching in Sacramento, you know, I grew up in um, the, the area I grew up in was very split white and Latino, but at that point, all the Latino kids were, um, tracked into the ESL program. So I didn't have anyone in my classes who, I mean, I have very few people who weren't white in my classes. Um, and so I was very much used to just looking like everybody else in the room. And then when I started student teaching in Sacramento, it started thinking like, oh, there are people who don't look like me, you know, and then when I started teaching in Oakland, it was, oh, I'm the, I've i never been the only white person in the room before. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a whole different thing. And there was a lot of growth that happened in my end, but that would have been better if it had happened not in a room of, you know, first graders because they deserved better. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah.
0: So do you think that... Things have changed because this was a little while back. So I'm curious if you Mm -hmm. feel that as an educator, things have improved in recent years with those kinds of adjustments in the education system where they're providing perhaps more tools for educators in those situations.
1: I think it's changing for the better. I think it's changing slowly. Um, When I was started teaching, it was I think it was 82 percent of white, uh, 82 percent of American public school teachers were white. Now, I think it's maybe 76 or 77. So, you know, it's not great, but it's trending a little better. Um, I think there probably are. I haven't been to a teaching credential program since my own. um, But I think there are probably more um, that we're learning. We didn't. The entirety of my, you know, we had a class that was, you know, multicultural education. And literally, the only thing I remember from it were that, We learned that in some Asian cultures, it's rude for children to make eye contact with adults and that um, in some uh, cultures, they won't be able to make the same sounds because, you know, just like many white Americans can't roll their R's, you know, many like that kind of thing. And that's it. I mean, I was completely (laughs) not prepared. (laughs) It's, I mean, it's embarrassing. You know, um, like I have, can I tell you a story about that sort of sums up my first year? Absolutely. Um, My first so my first year to set the stage, my first year, I um, came in in January and, you know, schools start in August or September and um, they had had uh, a teacher who quit at the beginning of the year and then they'd had six substitutes. So by the time I came in, um, you know, they they couldn't remember my name. They, um, you know, just were so over having different teachers. Um, and so my first um, month teaching was Martin Luther King's Day which is a big thing in elementary school. And I mean, it's embarrassing. The only things we learned like sort of in my student teaching was basically um, what you do for Martin Luther King days, you give everyone a picture of his face and they color it. And then you can all write your own I have a dream speech, right? I was 24 years old, I'd been a teacher for two weeks. I was like a little panicked because I'd never been the only white person in a room before. And you know, my idealistic self is saying that shouldn't matter. And I'm like, oh wait, but it feels different, you know? And this, te- this kid said, um, teacher, because I hadn't learned my name yet, you know, teacher, what did Martin Luther King do? And I said, well, um, he made it so black kids and white kids can go to school together. And I will never, ever forget the six-year-old. She just sighed like, Ugh. And she goes, teacher, black kids and white kids do not go to school together. Oh, and I looked around the room and I realized our, our school, at that point, we had 1,100 kids in our school. We didn't have any white kids. We had black kids. We had Latino kids, some of whom... You know could pass for white but we're definitely you know latino and we had southeast asian kids and i sort of you know stopped and this other kid said and you know they're they were they were so sweet they're trying to help me out you know this other kid said yeah there's three kinds of kids there's black kids there's mexican kids and there's chinese kids and then all the vietnamese kids in my class said don't call us chinese (laughs) and i'm sort of looking around and in shock you know and um they just start having this conversation. I mean, kids are amazing, right? And this other kid goes, "Well, there's white teachers there, though, so there has to be white kids somewhere, you know, because mm-hmm. like basically they grow into white teachers." And so they just start having. And I just sat there and thought, "I am not prepared. They deserve better, you know. I, I don't know what I'm doing. Nobody prepared me for this. Mm-hmm. Like, how how do I explain? Because I, ha- I mean, obviously, you know, we don't have legal segregation anymore in schools, but you know." <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. So that was the kind of thing that like, you know, I processed this, I grew, I became a better teacher, but I shouldn't, the sixth grade, the six year old should not have had to educate me. (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it seems that emotionally that must've taken a toll on you. You were trying to figure out what the next steps were going to be. And if there was Maybe a, I don't want to say a checklist, but maybe things that you figured out along the way that made things work for you so that you could be a better educator in that situation. What happened mm-hmm. there? What, what did that change look like for you?
1: Um, I think it, you know, some of it was very broad, like, um, you know, uh, white people do not know better than other people, which you know should, should sound really obvious and people should know that. But, you know, you don't as a as someone who grows up in this white bubble. Um, And even though, like I said, even though we had been working class, you know, and I thought I didn't, I fell into that trap of, you know, not thinking I had white privilege because we struggled with money. And, you know, I started realizing the difference with that, you know, especially when we go on field trips and the, you know, the transit driver would treat me very differently than it would, than they'd treat the, you know, the parents who were chaperones and that kind of thing. So just the whole like white privilege understanding. But then other little things like, well, maybe not little. I learned to listen to the parents, you know, that, you know, sure, I was maybe the, the expert in education, but they were the expert on their child, you know, and it didn't matter if they didn't have a high school education or they didn't speak English or they weren't a citizen or they, you know, I thought they weren't parenting right. They were, they knew their kid better than anybody else. Um, you know, and that may, you know, was a just life changing to have that click for me. And I could tell. Also, once I started realizing that, the parents treated me differently. Like we were on mm-hmm. team, and I wasn't, you know, the adversary. We were a team. Yeah. Um. And uh, also, I think something that you know, um, when you're teaching quote unquote inner city kids, you know, or what we say now is you know kids in underserved populations. Um, sometimes it's easy to forget that they're kids, and it's easy to think of them as sort of you know statistics and potential tragedies and they're just funny. I mean, kids are just as funny as hell, you know, they're (laughs) hilarious. And, and so to hold that, you know, like there was one year I had a child who saw her dad shot and killed in second grade, saw her dad shot and killed, was dealing with that PTSD, but also, but also kids were just the funniest things in the world because they're kids still, Mm -hmm. you know? And so that is just this crazy dichotomy to have to hang on to.
0: Absolutely. So I hope that uh, I'm not prying on this too much because sometimes it can be tricky to talk about specifics of certain situations, mm-hmm. but I'm curious if there was an experience that you may have had with a parent at some point in time where, where you had a eureka moment or something clicked that that made you feel like you had made a breakthrough in understanding, if there was something that you feel comfortable sharing.
1: Oh my gosh, this is, yeah, and if this, if this were like a TV show or something, it would be like too expository. I mean, it's so, you know, so I, um, and I actually didn't put this in my book cause I forgot about it and <laughs> remembered it later. But, um, this is, and again, you know, a lot of these stories do not put me in a good light, <laughs> but I like to share them because I think we need to learn. And so I think it was my second year of teaching, I was teaching third grade. And, um, I had this child who, um, was, um, I don't even remember his name, but I remember his mom's name. His mom's name was Linda. And this was, you know, a very long time ago, the child probably 30 years old now. Um, and he was a larger black boy. Um, you know, third grade can, it's funny third grade, you can have these little tiny, tiny kids. And then you can have these kids that look like they're ready. They're in middle school, you know, he was in the larger end and he was angry a lot. And, um, He, We had been working on that a lot, you know, the calming down, the like, what do you need to do take care of yourself, you know, all this stuff. And I wrote on his report card comments, you know, that he had, um, we had been working together on his anger issues and he was doing better. And the mom came to me and she said, and she was so kind and that made the difference because I think knowing myself, if she'd come in angry, I think I would have gotten defensive and gone straight to the, you know favorite liberal white person line, which is, I'm not racist, how dare you, you know? Mm. And she came in and she said, "Miss Harris, um, I really want to talk to you about his report card. You know, I'm really worried that you said he has anger issues. And I said, well, he does. And I did get a little defensive, you know, he does. Um, but we're working on them. He's getting better, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she said, I don't think you understand how this could follow a black boy around, you know, because report cards, and I don't know if people in educate not in education, know this. report cards go in the cumulative folder. They follow you till 12th grade. Any teacher can look up, you know, previous years. Mm -hmm. And she said, once a black boy gets labeled as angry, like that could be it for him. And I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't, looking back, I wouldn't blame her if she had been angrier or less kind, but she was so kind that it cut through all my defensiveness. And I totally listened. And now I completely get it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, that was the first time I'd ever thought about it. Um, and she just, you know, I'm forever in debt to Linda for, you know, I, I probably would have gotten there someday, but you mm-hmm. know, she saved, she saved me a lot of steps.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it seems like there, if there is a willingness there to work together and, and, she could probably clearly tell that you were looking to make those inroads as well, to try to make those, those changes or be understanding. Cause there are some folks who in those positions of power may not feel like they should, make certain adjustments. Uh, So that was really Mm -hmm. wonderful to see. So in terms of like starting to make inroads in terms of your writing and how that sort of fits into the fuller picture of your life, had you always considered that you were going to be writing about this in some capacity or, or how does that play into the picture?
1: So I hadn't, um, I actually, what um, made me start writing it is that a friend who didn't believe me, And my first book is called literally unbelievable because of this, because a friend sat me down, you know, most of my friends were middle-class white people and um, who had gone to, you know, middle-class white schools. And when I'm telling them things like, you know, we had an attempted kidnapping and the police didn't show up, which is true. And, you know, um, and, you know, just all these, you know, that we didn't have, I mean, there were, you know, we had lockdowns. This was before, you know, lockdowns and gun violence was common. And, um, one of my friends said to me, um, she said, look, I feel like I can't believe you. she said, not because you're not a truthful person, but because what you're telling us is literally unbelievable. And I said, but it's true. And she said, you need to start writing it down. You need to start documenting it. Um, and so, you know, that became the title of the first book. And I just started a blog, you know, and I changed all the names and, um, And it's interesting because, you know, it depends on who I talk to. When I talk to, uh, white Americans, they do have trouble believing it. And when I talk to most other demographics, they go, Oh yeah, of course. Like, what do you mean people didn't know that, um, about various stories in the book. Mm -hmm. So I mostly started writing it down because people weren't believing me and I wanted to document it. So then I had this blog and then people kept saying, I didn't show it to everybody. You know, I didn't show it to coworkers and stuff. Um, And people kept saying, you should make this into a book, you should make this into a book. And it took me about 10 years to change all the blog stuff into a book. And some of that was just because, you know, I'd be working on it for a while. And then I'd find out that a former student died and, you know, he died because he was trying to get out of a gang and, you know, they Mm -hmm. shot him and, you know, he was one of my favorites and he'd had just the hardest childhood. He was finally starting to get his life together. And, you know, so I would put it down for a year. Mm -hmm. Um, And, Then I finally, when it was like almost ready to go, I um, found all the students I still could who I was in touch with. You know, it wasn't that many, but I found the ones who still could. I still could. And I said, basically, you know, I'm writing about this. I've changed all the names. But, you know, um, is it okay to share this story or that story or whatever with all the details changed? And one of them said, no, absolutely not. And I took out all of her stuff out. Um, And I and, you know, I was like, okay, okay, you know, it's your life. It's, you know, and part of me was like, oh, but I changed the name. Maybe I shouldn't ask for it. No, it's her life. She doesn't. Mm-hmm. And the others um, all said yes. And one of them said, "Miss Harris, we've been waiting our entire lives for someone to listen to our stories. And um, yeah, so that was, you know, still. So, and, and she's, uh, I still talk to her every once in a while. She's in her early 30s. She's mm-hmm. a guidance counselor at her old high school. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Great. yeah, She's really special.
0: So, so uh, yeah.
1: So I finally made it. Into a
0: book. Yeah. This brought up a quick question in my mind about uh, how those relationships have been fostered with with folks. You know, it's very difficult. I'm sure educators see a lot of kids, especially once they've been in there mm-hmm. for a while in in the game. Right, so right. How does how were you able to do that to, to just kind of manage those those relationships and stay in touch? And I guess maybe what I'm curious about is is how you go from maybe a place when you first started that was pretty contentious to to actually finding a foothold on, on how to get through to kids.
1: Well, one of the big things was that people left really, there's a huge turnover in my school. So once I hit two years, the parents would start saying, Oh, Ms. Harris has been there forever. You know, I was 26. (laughs) They're talking about me. Like I've been there 50 years. Um, (laughs) And because two years, somehow no one, you know, a lot of people didn't make it two years. By the time I was there eight years, my last year, I was there for eight years total. And I wanted to stay, but my health just suffered a lot from all the stress. Um, not of the kids, of the adults. Um, Mm -hmm. And by the time I was there, my eighth year, I was 31. I was the senior teacher. You know, I was not the oldest teacher, but I was the teacher who had been at that school the longest. Um, And so that, the longevity helped. And then parents would start, just because they knew I was there and I was a known quantity, they'd start requesting their younger kids to be in my class. Mm -hmm. So I'd get, you know, multiple kids in the same family or cousins or whatever. So I'd get to know the parents. And, um, you know, I, and I just never changed my cell phone number. So, um, <laughs> you know, I had, <clears throat> like, there was one time I had this kid, the one who said I couldn't use her story. Um, so I will not tell you any of their stories. But this this part I'm allowed to share. is um, She was um, in my third grade class. And um, she, you know, I kept in touch when she was in fourth grade and fifth grade because she was at the same school. And then we lost touch. And then um, years later, I got a text from her saying she's graduating with 4.0 from high school.
0: Um,
1: you know, so every once in a while you get that. But a lot of them I just, you know, I'd sort of check in on them like, hey, how are you doing in, um, you know, in middle school? You know, how are you doing in high school? Um, you know, every once in a while they'd be like, hey, can you look over, I mean, not very many of them went to college, but every once in a while, can you look over my college application essay? Mm. Um, you know, and some of them, social media, a few, not a lot. Um, some of them I've met their kids you know, um, yeah, it's one of them, the one who, you know, um, asked me for, to look over her college application essays. She went to Howard, she graduated from Howard with honors. She went to Johns Hopkins. She got a master's and she got her teaching credential. And now she's a teacher. She's the head of the science department at a school in San Francisco. And, you know, I see her and she's a kid and every once in a while, you know, I'll, texture and ask how her kid is and how teaching is. And she's like, "Miss Harris, you have no idea how badly we need black teachers. And I'm like, I'm so glad yeah. you went into this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: and I'm glad you mentioned so. that um, because I, of course I want to talk about sort of putting together the book and, and a couple of questions mm-hmm. there, but I'm curious of what, what you feel the state of teaching is, especially in those at risk communities and uh, yeah. sort of what ideally needs to happen in order for, some communities to move forward with the type of help that they need.
1: Right. We need to pay teachers more. We need to pay teachers a lot more because people don't go into teaching because they know they won't be able to survive. I mean, I can't go back to teaching because I left the classroom because of health issues. I, I fully intended to go back. And once you stop moving up on the salary scale, I can't afford it now. With mm. I, I could afford it if I either had a wealthy spouse, family money, or I lived in, um, uh, housing with a bunch of roommates, you know, I'm 47. I don't want to live with roommates. Um, you know, I'm not married. I don't have family money. Mm -hmm. I can't go back. Um, and so for, and a lot of, you know, and I totally understand more marginalized communities. If you go through and you get a college degree and a graduate degree, do you want to go into something that's going to make it hard for you to live on your wages? You know, no, you want to pick a different profession. So we need to pay teachers a lot more. Um, and um, that's, that's a huge one. Huge. And um, we need to listen to educators of color because they, I think have a lot more answers than I do and have not been listened to and students of color. Mm-hmm. And what I've noticed um, in my teaching career is we go, Oh, black kids are so resilient. This is awesome. That's great. And we move on. Well, they shouldn't have to be resilient. You know, kids shouldn't have to live in violent areas. They shouldn't have to go to schools that have lockdowns all the time. They shouldn't have to go to schools like mine, where everyone with seniority transfers to a different school. And so they get all the brand new teachers. And, um, you know, so in a way, even though I've written two books, I don't think I'm the person with the answers. And my answer is we need to listen to other people Mm. and white people do not like to listen to other people and people in power do not like to listen to teachers or students. Um, but, you know, people like Stephanie is the, um, like, I, there were a couple of times I was invited to a panel uh, to speak, and I said, actually, and I talked to Stephanie before I volunteered her, but I said, the, my student who is, uh, my black student who's a teacher now, and I said, would you like to be on the panel, not me? Because I don't want them to listen to me, I want them to listen to you.
0: Mm. That's incredibly mm. admirable, because <laughs> it takes a
1: lot, I mean... It, <laughs>
0: It really takes a lot to, to to say, you know, yes I'm knowledgeable on the topic, but at the same time we need to get to the source. We need to figure out Right. Yeah, where those voices are and yeah, who sh- we it's should funny, listen to. It's funny cuz
1: it feels a little bit like a cop out, like I'm not giving you an answer. <laughs> you know, so I don't, I don't know if I'd call it admirable cuz it feels like I'm sort of passing the buck, but you know, we've listened to only white people for a very long time. mm mm-hmm.
0: Mhm. But it seems like you're still doing your part. You're still part of the conversation because you're writing your books and you're getting this information mm-hmm. out there, your perspective. But the thing that, that is more difficult is to go the extra mile and say, here's my spot. Have somebody of that particular community yeah. take take the stage and do the right thing there. So I, I applaud that. But let's, let's talk about the... Um, the book and the process of, of doing this, because you did this on your own and Mm -hmm. you have a very specific reason that you chose to do that. Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. you had mentioned that, uh, something led you to, to do that on your own. If you could share that with me.
1: Right. So I've actually written two books and I'll, I'll tell you about the second. The second was a um, collaboration with a former student. The first one, um, I, there's a lot of stuff that is very difficult to talk about. And very, um, you know, sometimes it's embarrassing saying, you know, I came in as an idealistic white person who wanted to save children of color. Um, and I didn't want anyone toning that down. And if I said anything wrong, I wanted to, to, um, own that. And, um, you know, I wanted to have responsibility for every one of my words. And I know that if you get into a publishing contract with a publisher, you know, that may or may not happen. Mm. So I self-published. Um, I did, you know, query with a few agents at first. And what I got consistently was this book made me cry. It needs to be published. It's not my forte. You know, no one wants to buy teacher memoir. Like, you know, um, uh, even Anne Lamott, do you know the author Anne Lamott? Yes. Um, she's amazing. She read my book. Um, she gave me an amazing quote that I, of course, immediately put on the back of the book, but she (laughs) said, um, talk to my agent. Her agent said, no, her agent. I, I was like, you can, you can say no to Anne Lamotte, like, <laughs> you know, um, but you know, then I think about it and things, I, I just don't want anything watered down, um, because it's a really uncomfortable, a lot of the things to face as white people, like, you know, this is what I did wrong. This is what I, you know, I was, I was an idiot my first month of teaching. And I told the kids that, yay, Martin Luther King made schools desegregated and they schooled me, you know, I didn't want any of that, um, made more palatable. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second book. So what happened was, in my first book, I have um, I have two chapters that are dedicated to just one individual student, and one of them is the child who died, um, and that is a whole, you know, very sad story. Um, and another one is dedicated to, or written about, a child who um, who I call Jorge, who um, uh, went to who I had lost touch with at that point when I was writing the book. Um, he is sort of the embodiment of the school to prison pipeline. I mean, he said to me at one point, he said, how do I learn to be good? And I said, what? You know, he's eight I'm years old. And he said, well, other people and he, you know, a very difficult family situation. His The short version is that his mom came to the U.S. as a um, toddler um, because her mom, who I'm not friends with, his grandma, um, was fleeing um, El Salvador and, So, you know, his mom was stuck in this, you know, she didn't know El Salvador, but she was, you know, undocumented here. And um, she had uh, a very serious substance abuse problem and had him when she was 14. Mm. Um, So, you know, just a lot of issues there. And he was kind of trying to be the adult in his family. And he said, how do I learn to be good? Because the other kids have someone to teach them how to be good. And I just have to do it myself. You know, I mean, that kind of like thoughtful. Thoughtful, introspective. I mean, amazing person. Yeah. And um, so he just tried He fought that school to prison pipeline as hard as he could. And then in eighth grade, he saw his friend murdered in front of him. And, you know, it went right into the gang front to retaliate. The Oakland police took him straight to the um, shooter's door and made him, you know, identify the shooter who's 13. And so they, you know, said, okay, well, you know, we're putting out a hit on you. And so he joined the rival gang to protect his family, which mm-hmm. makes perfect sense, especially if you're 13, especially if the police won't listen. And, you know, his life went downhill. And mm-hmm. I had sort of, after being his teacher, I would sort of been a mentor to him. I completely lost touch with him. You know, he started, um, uh, you know, he'd call me and leave, you know, and just say, like, curse at me, get out of my life, you know. So um, I'd lost touch with him. And I wrote this chapter. And as I wrote the chapter, I thought, gosh, I wonder what happened to him. I was really scared to look because I assumed what happened to him yeah. and he has a, you know, fairly unusual last name. So I looked him up and he had been about a, two months after he turned 18. So he was tried as an adult. He had been um, arrested for an attempted, uh, drive by shooting attempted to, he was the driver and someone had attempted to shoot a police officer. Mm-hmm. And thank goodness the shooter had very bad aim and didn't hurt anybody. Um, but you know, he—they both went in prison, and they had a gang enhancement and then a gun enhancement, He used to be in prison for 19 years. And I found him; he was in San Quentin. And I, um, sorry if this is too long, but no, the, this the story is like, yeah, okay. Um, so I, I had a reporter friend who helped me like find him, and I called San Quentin, and I said, because you can't write to people without a prisoner number, you know. And I said, I need a prisoner number, and she said, okay, I need the birth date. And I said, okay, And uh, somehow I remembered because his birthday is one day off from a holiday. So I remembered his birthday, Wow! but I can't remember the year um, exactly because I couldn't remember which year I'd had him in class. And um, I said, okay, his birthday is this. And I said, ah, oh, it's either 95 or 96. I don't remember. And she goes, sorry, ma'am, can't help you without the year. And she's about to hang up. And I said, please, this was my third grade student. And there's total silence. The San Quentin lady said, okay, I'll look up every year in the 90s on this date. And she gave me his prisoner number and I wrote to him and I said, hi, do you remember me? And he wrote back and he said, Oh my God, I thought about you all the time because I treated you so bad because I was so scared. Um, And this is what's happened. This is, I want to say it was maybe two years after he had been arrested. You know, this is what happened since I've seen you last. And what happened was his mom had died in a fire. He had left the gang when he got to prison, which is incredibly dangerous. Mm. Um, basically, I'm not an expert, but he, what he told me is you walk in the gang and you're supposed to, they say affiliation and he's supposed to say, you know, the gang name. And he said, um, he said, I'm a dropout. And they put you in solitary confinement because that puts a target on your back for everybody. And then they put him in, um, you know, the not general population. Um, and um, so he, he, his mom had died. He dropped out of the gang. And um, he said, you know, I'm clean now. And everything's really hard. Um, and so we started writing. And so the second book I have is is our letters back and forth for the first three years that mm-hmm. we wrote together. Um, I mean, that, that we wrote back and forth. And he is, I mean, I sent it to my editor. I sent the whole manuscript. You know, he I wrote the introduction. He wrote the conclusion. The rest is our letters. And she said, did you say this kid hasn't finished high school? And I said, yeah. I said, basically... He finished fifth grade solidly. He finished eighth grade, sort of. And then he never went back to school. Mm. And she said, then why am I not having to change anything in his writing? His writing's beautiful. She's like, no offense, but I'm having to change more in yours than his. <laughs> he's, just, he's, nat- he's natural. And so I've seen him, you know, he's getting his DD. He's changed. And he hasn't. You know, I've, I've been a teacher a long time. I can tell when people are BSing me, like he's changed mm-hmm. um, his, his whole, his demeanor, like his, you know, the way we talk now, um, he writes me heartfelt things, you know, he's scared to get out, but he's really hopeful, you know? And so the second book is that, and um, that's the one, you know, I, I don't know how to network that it came out during COVID, but that's the story, you know, that I really want to get out because he said, to me a couple things. He said, I didn't know people like me could write a book. And he said, um, you know, I didn't know anyone didn't know how hard it was to be someone like me. Mm-hmm. And by someone like me, he means, you know, a Latino kid whose mom was, you know, undocumented teen mom in Oakland, you know, in the most violent area. And um, so, you know, all the proceeds of that book go to his grandma, who's um, his only family. Oh, left, that's wonderful. He's very, very close to, Yeah, but he's just, I mean, when he's out, which is four years or less, we're hoping for less because they're trying to get the gang enhancement off. Um, when he's out, then I'm just going to try to, you know, connect with everybody I can and let him do speak, you know, and basically yeah, like yeah. start things and and do a little bait and switch. Like, hi, I'm the nice white author here to talk to you. Just kidding. I'm gonna sit down here to, listen to him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I I got to commend you once again. This is just so heartbreaking, but there's a sense of optimism here that there is a way of possibility of of positive light happening. I'm just uh, completely grateful to you for that. You have taken the time to do this. I only got one more question for you because I think Uh that we're probably going to have to chat again. We had some technical difficulties here, but hopefully down the road, we'll be able to catch up uh, a little bit more. I would like to ask you what you would like folks to get out of this book that we haven't already discussed. If there is a way to cut through the perhaps jadedness of like, this is this is what their situation is. It doesn't concern me. I get to move on now with my life. Right, right. How do we reach those people? What do you want your work to say to those people directly?
1: Right. Um, I wanted to say that if the situation isn't good enough for your son, daughter, nephew, grandkid, then it shouldn't be okay for any school kid. Um, because everything I write about in my first book, um, you know, people I know would not send their child, would not let their child be in that situation. And the answer is not, what what I think the answer that people think is, oh, I'll send them to a private school, I'll send them to a charter school, I'll move into a better school district. If it's not okay for your child, it's not okay for anybody and we need to fix that. And by, to fix that, we need to listen to the people who are affected. And just end of story, all the kids belong to all of us. Um, it's not that things are okay for some kids and not others. And then, um, you know, the other one, which I'd love to have you, when, when he's out of prison, hopefully we can talk again, but, um, or I'm happy to talk anytime, but um, I want people to see incarcerated people as humans and see what brought them there. Because this child had a whole story that, you know what I mean, he was arrested when he was 18 and two months, and he had a whole story that brought him there. This was, I guess, the, the fundamental moral of that book is this was preventable. This was 100% preventable. And, you know, of both books, I, I want us to stop treating children as disposable. You know, every child deserves what we think our own children deserve.
0: That's amazing. Thank you so much, Bronwyn. It's it's been an absolute sure. pleasure. And uh, again, you know, I just want to thank you for having the courage to do this. You know, I know it's difficult to put yourself in that situation to have the humility to be open about your mistakes and how you're learning well, to be an ally. <laughs> but but at the same time, you know, it's not easy work. So I I thank you for the work that you've done and for using your voice to bring awareness to issues that are incredibly important to us and and really in the moment that we need to uh we need to pay attention to them so uh yeah let's well, talk thank again you.
1: i'd love to it's been a real pleasure i don't know if you can tell it brings me so much joy to talk about this you know this is just such it's such a privilege to be able to like have you know permission to tell these kids stories so mm-hmm. anytime absolutely anytime
0: absolutely well let me bug you a little bit later on uh you know uh, okay. down the road when there's some more developments but it's been such a blast and uh, i thank you so much for the work you're doing
1: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: (laughs) All right. I'll leave you be, but I'll be in touch real soon. Okay. Thanks again. Okay.
1: Thank you. Bye. Bye.